You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are nearing the end of our series titled, I Am. And in Scripture, Jesus made seven I Am statements throughout the gospel, according to John, and, and this series has been all about those statements. And this week, we are in John chapter 14, and so if you guys, if you want to follow along on the screen, or if you want to turn to it on your Bibles, I encourage you to, to flip that open now. Jesus says this statement, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So let's open up, and uh, let's read verses 1 through 14 together. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning seeking your heart, seeking your presence God, teach us about yourself this morning. As we dive through this scripture, um, as we learn about this statement, the, the way, the truth, the life, God, teach us what that means. But God, also let us respond to that through our lives, through our thoughts, through our heart. God, we love you and we praise you it's the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So I want to go ahead and set the scene for this conversation that is taking place here in chapter 14. This chapter is a continuation of the conversation that, that starts in chapter 13. 
You know, and, and chapter 13 is where we find the, the start of the story of the Last Supper. And so when we come to chapter 14, and, and this conversation continues, often when we see the start of a new chapter, we, we tend to insert some separation that, that isn't actually there, but this is all taking place on the evening that Jesus is betrayed and handed over to the Pharisees. And so the first words of chapter 14 that Jesus speaks are, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So why does Jesus say, do not be troubled? To answer that, we have to again look back at chapter 13. What were they talking about before we got here? Now, some of you may remember what happened on the night of the Last Supper, uh, but in case you don't, let me tell you, it was not the, the normal type of conversation that you have with your friends over dinner, right? This, the meal itself was, was pretty uneventful, at least as far as we can tell, according to Scripture, um, but, well, at least as normal as having dinner with the God of the universe can be, um, but after dinner, things get interesting, right? He says, Jesus starts by washing his disciples' feet, you know, something that, that would normally have been relegated to, to servants. And then he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. You know, the casual conversation that you have with friends over dinner, right? And then he tells them that he's going somewhere that they cannot go yet. And Peter is like, he's upset. And, and he asks Jesus why he can't go with him now. After all, he would die for him. Why can't he go now? And, and to which Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, before the crow, or before the crow, the rooster crows, uh, you will have denied me three times. And Jesus also gives a new commandment to his disciples, a commandment to love one another. And he tells them that this is how the world will know you are mine, by the way that you love one another. And so all of this takes place, and Jesus continues the conversation at the beginning of chapter 14 by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, I imagine that the disciples were probably reeling at this point, right? Jesus has been dropping some bombs on them, and then he just says, don't be troubled. I'm sure that there was much that they felt troubled about. But Jesus says, don't be troubled. Trust me. Trust the Father. Believe in me and believe in the Father. Why? Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and get you so that we can be together again. I, I love the, the casual confidence and surety that, that Jesus speaks of his journey to the cross. Jesus knew what was coming. Uh, Bible commentator James Morrison writes on the statement, I go. He says, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. He says, I go speaks of Jesus' own planning and initiative. He wasn't taken to the cross. He went there. You know, his disciples thought that, that his death was an unforeseen calamity, but Christ taught them that it was a path of his own choosing and planning. Don't be troubled. Just trust me. I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And then he says this, and you know the way to where I'm going. 
And now I have to stop and, and just say here, I really feel like Jesus is just teeing up the shot here, right? Like he, he, I mean, he spent almost every waking moment with these guys for the last three years. And so he knows his guys, right? And I'm sure that he was not only unsurprised, but was in fact waiting for the question. When, as if on cue, Thomas interjects, I'm sorry, what? We don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? Which brings us to probably one of the most declarative statements that Jesus ever made concerning himself. And Jesus knows that, that his time left on this earth with these men is limited. And he has a few important things that he wants to remind them of before he goes. And so Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know what, what Thomas was expecting, but I'd be willing to bet it was more in lines with like an address or directions, right? Not what he got. This is, this is an absolutely loaded statement that Jesus makes. Notice that he, he doesn't say he's a way. He doesn't say he's a good way. He doesn't even say he's the best way. No, he says, I am the way, the only way. And Jesus doesn't say that, that I'm a good source of truth. He doesn't, he doesn't say that if you ask me, I will tell you the truth. No, he says, I am the truth. And he doesn't say that he can give life. He doesn't say, hang out with me and you're going to have a good life. No, he says, I am the life, the very source of life itself. And finally, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Understood plainly that this is the most, one of the most exclusive and controversial things that Jesus ever said and the gospel writers ever recorded. Now, growing up, I hated exclusivity. And in many ways, I, I still do. I don't like being left out. And I don't like leaving others out. I, I love being in on the action, right? Not being welcome or allowed to participate in something just left me feeling bad. And so I never wanted to do that to someone else, right? I don't even like going to restaurants. Actually, I, I don't think I've ever gone to a restaurant that required a certain dress code because that just bothers me. And, and so I think the reason that I feel this way is because in most cases, exclusivity produces a feeling of superiority in those that, that are on the inside and a sense of, of inferiority for those who are on the outside. Put simply, I, I just feel like it's mean. And, and so I would be willing to wager that many in this room have probably felt the same way, that have felt the unfairness or the injustice of, of being left out, of exclusivity. No one enjoys being left out, right? You know, Many of you might think that this sounds infantile, like in argument, right? Like you might be thinking that this guy just needs to grow some thicker skin, all right? The world's tough, deal with it. And, but consider this, being left out, being rejected speaks directly to one of our greatest fears as humans. Not being accepted, not being loved, not belonging, being alone. So, when Jesus says 
that he is the only way and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Maybe there's a part of us that hesitates, that wants to push back against that a little and says, I don't like the sound of that. That doesn't seem fair. That seems harsh, exclusive. Might bring to mind those times when we unfairly or unjustly landed on the outside of something that we would have loved to be a part of. You, know, you might feel that it's unfair for God to have made only one way. And you wouldn't be the only one. You know, there's this, this Jewish rabbi whose name I'm going to butcher, um, but the, to the best of my ability, his name's Shmuley Botich, and he, he summed up these, the feelings of, of many people, I think, when he said this. I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. It's a way of saying that we are closer to God than you, and that's what leads to hatred. Now, I have to say, if Jesus was merely another human teacher among countless others, I really believe that this, this rabbi's opinion could have some merit. I really do. If Jesus was merely human, then his claim to be the only way to God would be crazy. It would, it would be absurd. How could one human who's finite and limited claim to have the monopoly on, on truth or life or the way to God? It's, it's absurd. But, my friends, if Jesus is in fact God himself, then that would put his claim into a completely different light. You know, and, and that is what Jesus is addressing as we continue through this section of scripture in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And now it is at this point that it's Philip's turn to, to interject. And in, in verse 8, he says, Lord, show us this Father. That would be sufficient for us. And now what, what Philip missed here is what I, I think many people miss when trying to compare the God of the Old Testament to Jesus, God in the New Testament. You know, we, we tend to, to separate these two gods that we see, that, that, you know, God in the Old Testament is, is harsh and judgmental, and, and then God of the New Testament, Jesus, is, is kind and loving and accepting. But Jesus' response sheds some light here. And, and this is verses 9 through 11. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father also. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So Jesus is telling us why he is the only way to God. He is, is the perfect representation of God here on earth. 
No one else could have more closely embodied God's heart for humankind than Jesus. Because they're one. And so to say that the God of the Old Testament is is different than the God of the New Testament is absurd because they are one. And that's what, and that's what Jesus is, is saying. He says, you know, you, you, if you don't believe me based on, you know, just what I'm saying here, believe it based on the works that I'm doing. Have you not seen the miraculous things that I am doing? He says, I am in the Father, and the only way to the Father is through me. And in in light of this statement, if Jesus is God, the infinite and all-powerful, the infallible and all-knowing, the ever-present God of the universe, that changes things, does it not? Right? Like, that's a little different than you or I saying, hey, I am the way to God. It's, it is different, (laughs) You know, the one who holds the title of God can say with absolute certainty exactly how many ways there are to God, and we don't have a square inch of ground to stand on that could ever suggest otherwise. But this singular way to God, it's not a new concept. You know, we have seen this as a consistent theme throughout Scripture, If we look back to to Exodus and the Ten Commandments, they begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. We've heard how things went for Israelites when they turned away from God. Have we not? It never went well. And throughout the Old Testament, God denounced and mocked these supposed gods that others worshipped. You know, thinking of of Elijah and and the prophets of Baal on the mountain, and there's this big contest, and and God just makes a fool of these prophets of Baal. And you might say, okay, great, it's not new, but it's still exclusive. It still seems unfair. Well, let's take a moment and digest exactly what Jesus is saying here. You know, to many, it might sound like Jesus is this cosmic bouncer manning the door to the eternal party of all parties, right? And the only way that you're getting in is if you really impress him. But, I mean, what about all the other kind, you know, nice people that, that just don't believe in him? People, you know, who, who aren't evil, but aren't exactly saints either, right? Is Jesus just saying no to them for eternity, it sounds like he's on some sort of power trip. But listen, friends, this, this couldn't be farther from the truth. And Jesus wasn't on a power trip. He, he surrendered all of his power. When he came to earth, he humbled himself so that we, a sinful, fallen, and corrupt people, could be in union with a perfect sinless, all-powerful God of the universe. Jesus came to to flip the power structure upside down. You you see, in Jesus' day, the the only person who could ever be in the presence of God was the high priest. And that was once a year. Everybody else, there was this clear hierarchy of how close to God you could be. 
If you were a priest, awesome. You were good to go. If you were a Jewish man, great. But beyond that, it just kept getting more and more distance. If you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, if you were a woman, if you were a slave, things continued to kind of get further out, a little more distant. But Jesus took this religious hierarchy of the day and he just tossed it. And he became our direct path to the Father. Let me ask you this. What other God has ever done so much to lower the bar so that we could be in union with him? Think about this. Every other religion, faith structure in the world teaches us to earn our way to God. Right? But Jesus humbled himself and personally came to accomplish his mission. Christianity is the, is the only faith that teaches that God came to us. Yeah, now, we aren't to the end of the story yet in this series, but we know how it ends, right? You know, in Romans 5.8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the price. And on the third day, he was born again and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus died for us before we did a thing for him. God didn't wait for us to, to get things right before he sent his son to die. No. In fact, God sent his son because he knew that we could never get it right without Jesus. Other religions have this system of rules to appease their God. But we as Christians have a relationship with God. Every other religion is about a a path to enlightenment, to reach some lofty, transcendent perspective, to be good, to live a good life, They give us lists of of things to do and not to do in hopes of getting into heaven. But our scripture teaches us that there is nothing we could ever do to earn that right, to earn our way into heaven. And so God himself made the way in Jesus. Psalms 145 verses 18 through 19 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. We don't have to appease God first to receive his favor. He already showed his love for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross in our place for our sins. You know, the separation between us and God was bridged And so we didn't have to do a thing but believe. There's so much that Jesus fulfilled and accomplished through his coming to earth. Where there was once a hierarchy of how close you could get to God, a system that held groups like women and slaves and Gentiles at arm's length, Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians that that we are all now in equal standing with God because of what Jesus accomplished through the cross and resurrection. 
That is good news, is it not? You see, yes, Jesus is the exclusive only way to God, but at the same time, that way is the most welcoming and accepting faith on earth. Christianity embraces other cultures and has the most urgency to translate scripture into new languages. Christian can, can keep their native language and culture and follow Jesus in the midst of it. In fact, an early criticism of Christianity was, that, was the observation that they would just take anybody. Right? They're like, oh, they'll just take anybody. You know, it's nothing special to be a part of that club. Right? No, it didn't matter. Slave or free, rich or poor, man or woman, Greek, barbarian, whatever. It didn't matter. All were accepted, but accepted on the common ground of the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus removed every barrier between us and God except our own will. We just have to choose. So I ask again, what other God has done so much to lower the bar so that we could be in union with him? There's none. There's no one like our God. Amen? If you want to talk about unfair... It's unfair that Jesus came and did that for us. Jesus then goes on to encourage and comfort his disciples further. You know, Jesus is, is hours away from uh, you know, being crucified, and, and he's just spending that time encouraging and comforting his disciples. And so in verses 12 through 14, he assures them that the good works he started in his ministry, would not end when he went away. He said, you know, because he, he knew the, the fears that the disciples had that, you know, they had left everything behind to be his followers. And now, like, they've just spent the last three years with him, and he's just saying, all right, I'm out. What, what does that mean for them? And so th this is a, a fear of their hearts. And so he says, don't worry if you believe in me, things are going to continue. This is verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus says, be steadfast, believe in me, and you will do wondrous things in my name. And we see the truth of that later in the book of Acts. You know, thousands upon thousands of new believers coming to know Christ through the work of his disciples and his Holy Spirit. It's miraculous. So in closing, I want to address two groups in the room this morning. The first that I want to speak to are the skeptics, that, that Jesus is the only way to God. And if that is you this morning, let me say this. If you believe anything else that Jesus said throughout his ministry on earth, anything at all, you simply must accept that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And to that you might say, Caleb, that was a very poorly reasoned argument. And, and I understand why you might think that, but let me explain why it makes sense. 
If Jesus isn't the only way to God, then he's no way to God at all. If Jesus isn't the only way to God, then that means he is not an honest man. If he's not an honest man, then the entire foundation his ministry is built on being the son of God and the task that he came to accomplish, living a perfect life, sinless life, so that we could be brought back into right standing with God, it crumbles. It falls apart. You see, Jesus simply can't have just been a good teacher and a great example. If he wasn't God and yet claimed to be, he would either be a raving lunatic or a blatant liar. There's no in-between. And, you know, many of you have heard that expression before, and it brings to the surface one of the most common ways that the Christians misuse God's word. It is the temptation to pick and choose what we agree with and reject that which doesn't fit into our picture of who Jesus was. All right, and here's the problem with that. I, I love the way that uh, commentator David Guzik, he, he tells us in his commentary on, on the Gospel of John, if we can determine what Jesus said or didn't say on our own whims, then we should reject the Gospels completely. It really is an all-or-nothing deal. Either we take the words of Jesus as, as recorded by these historically reliable and accurate documents, or we reject them completely. It comes down to this. If we can't trust that all Scripture is God-breathed, as, as Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 3, and that God's hand has been on it throughout history, then why would we even waste our time? Please understand the gravity of what is being suggested here and the implications of this line of thinking. If God's word is untrustworthy, then God is untrustworthy. And if that is true, then why would we claim to have faith in him whatsoever? It's a quick, dangerous slope. But this is the good news. God's word is trustworthy. It is reliable. And it is alive. You know, I, I can say with absolute certainty that it is because I've seen the evidence of it in my own life. In my life, in the, in the lives of those around me, I see it in his creation. I see the intelligent design in the way the world fits together. I see the truth and the wisdom of it in my relationship with my wife. I see his love for us, a picture, a small picture of his love for us and my love for my children. Listen, I'm not standing here because I really resonated with advice of a good teacher 2,000 years ago. I'm standing here telling you this because the God of the universe revealed himself to us through the world he made, through his spirit, and through his divinely inspired word. Not because we deserve it, not because of, of anything that we've done or merited, because he is good. Amen? The second group that I, I want to address is the believers in the room. And to you, I say this. We pay really good attention to the truth part of this I am statement that Jesus makes. We do. Our world and culture is obsessed with being right, knowing truth, exposing truth. And I think much of this can be traced back to our own selfish desire to be right. 
But let me caution us all. Don't make Christianity, don't make your faith about your rightness in the world. Being right is not a worthy end in and of itself. It's not. Parading your rightness in front of others only serves to try and glorify yourself and does nothing to glorify God. Instead, remember that we have a good, infinitely complex, all-powerful God who surrendered it all for us. Paul tells us in in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at that name Jesus at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He laid down his great power and authority and might and rightness so that we might know him, not so that we could tell everybody else that they're wrong and we're right. Let's not forget about the other two parts of this uh, I am statement the way, and the life. We are called to live out Jesus' way. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we live out the way of Jesus in our day-to-day lives, or do we just believe the right things about God? Do we focus way more on Jesus as truth rather than Jesus as the way and the life? the, The Christian faith will receive anyone who comes through Jesus. Jesus said, through me. It's not through believing certain propositions regarding me. It's not through some special kind of faith, but through me. As in, through relationship with him. Through knowing him. Let us not be people who strive to simply know the right things. Let us not make Christianity our faith about our own rightness in the world. Let us not forget that the truth that is Jesus calls us, each and every one of us, to follow after him. A life in response to the sacrifice he made and the example that he set. Let us be disciples who live a life on mission in light of the things revealed to us in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today humbled by what you've done, humbled by the great majesty and the power and the might that you set aside so that you could be in union with us, so that you could make a way. And we know that we could never have done it on our own. So God, let us, in response to this great gift, live our lives 
humbly and in thanks and in response to what you've done. God, we praise you. We thank you for the way that you sent us through Jesus. Amen.